This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code GOODMORNING at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. My name is Matt, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time. And before we get into it here, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has reached out with kind words about this podcast. This is really fun for us, and knowing that it's well-received by you is very nice to hear. So thank you. Now, let's get down to today's episode. We're going back to February of 2011, when Debbie Millman spoke at Brooklyn's Galapagos Art Space. Debbie, without question, is one of the most powerful women in design. And to discuss this powerful woman, I had to reach out to another powerful woman, Creative Mornings founder Tina Roth-Eisenberg. I asked Tina if she could connect me with someone that I could speak to about Debbie. Now, I don't want this to get confusing, but I'm about to introduce another extremely powerful woman. Tina introduced me to the Senior Curator of Architecture and Design and Director of Research and Development for the Museum of Modern Art, Paola Antonelli. It was my great pleasure to speak with her, and Paola, as no stranger to a heavy workload, did not hesitate to sing Debbie's praises. You know, she's a true artist. She does art almost every day. And she is not only a brand and graphic designer, but also an executive in a really big company, plus the Design Matters podcasts, you know, and uh, how dedicated she uh, has been to disseminating design and to that particular form. So I've always been super impressed by her, not to mention also becoming part of professional associations and leading them. I don't know how she does it personally. That really big company that Paula just mentioned is Sterling Brands, one of the leading brand identity firms in America, where Debbie Millman is partner and president of the design division. Debbie is also chair of the School of Visual Arts Master's Program in Branding, and as Paula just mentioned as well, host of her own podcast, Design Matters. So what's my first question? Obviously, when Paula and Debbie get together to take over the design world, is it in the morning over coffee? We're dinner getters. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are like, we go steady. We're serious. No, no, we're, we're good friends. And of course, the natural follow-up, where does this meeting of the minds take place? When we picked them, they ended up being twice Japanese places, like Omen. <laughs> Good old omen is a good place. So put yourself at that dinner for just a moment and imagine the wisdom you would soak in as a fly on the wall. I think it's pretty safe to assume that at some point, most people, no matter what line of work, look up to someone in their field. I think it's also safe to assume that a lot of us have sent those emails requesting to pick someone's brain just to get a glimpse at what their journey has been like, what mistakes they've made, what impossible combination of decisions experiences, and sometimes, let's be real, even just luck that brought them to this place. Debbie Millman calls her talk the top 10 things I wish I knew when I graduated college. And I promise, no matter how far in the past college was for you, the wisdom she shares still applies. She touches on many of the ups and downs of business, and without giving too much away, Paula and I discussed one of Debbie's most important tips, simply being able to say, I don't know. I picked so many people's brains um, and I had a few amazing mentors. So I understand what Debbie says when she 
talks about uh, asking for help and uh, asking for people's opinions. I just think that whenever we have access to extraordinary people, we should take advantage of it with respect and uh, especially, as Debbie suggests, with vulnerability and humility. Like you go to people saying, I don't know it all. I actually know very little and I really could cherish your help. As you listen to Debbie Millman speak, you may find, as I did, that it's a lot like we sent her an email asking to grab a cup of coffee so we could pick her brain. Because we don't know it all, we actually know very little, and we really could cherish her help. So I had a bit of... um, I was flummoxed about this presentation today. Um, Wanted to do something new. I wanted to do something that would be entertaining and inspiring. And so I was really struggling about what to talk about. So what I decided to do was something um, a little bit revealing, a little bit um, tactical and practical, and I'm hoping inspiring and entertaining. And it's a little bit of uh, a presentation that I've put together over the years to help my students um, and also to inspire them, but it also has a lot of new things as I am now approaching 30 years in the design business, believe it or not. (laughs) So when I told um, my dear colleague Lisa about the title, she said, are you going to talk about boys? And I didn't really learn anything about boys when I was um, graduating college, so the answer is no to that one. So this is a presentation about things that I wish that I knew when I graduated college and started this journey, this 30-year now journey in the design business. So number one, um, the first thing that I wish that I knew when I graduated college is that design talent is essentially equivalent to what is called operational excellence in the business world. And operational excellence is essentially um, what it takes to operate a business or a service well. Um, But in many ways, it's really point of entry. Um, You turn on a light switch and the lights go on. That reflects the operational excellence of the electric company. Um, When somebody is interviewing you to do a design job, They expect that you know how to design. But that's really not what it takes to get the job. Design is one of the most subjective disciplines out there. Who here thinks that Salvador Dali is a good painter? Okay. Who here doesn't think that Salvador Dali is a particularly good or inspiring painter? Okay, so we have people that think that he is a good painter and people that think that he isn't a good painter. Well, the fact of the matter is, Salvador Dali is in museums all over the world, and despite whether or not we personally think he's good or bad, there's an accepted benchmark of his being quite excellent. But it's essentially something that, as the viewer, we are bringing an opinion to. And it's very much the same way with design. In fact, it's more so because there aren't design museums all over the world with people that are designated as masters. And so when anybody is looking at your portfolio or your work, it is going to be through the lens of what they believe is good or not. And because there isn't as much criteria as there is as, say, what it takes to be an excellent mathematician 
or an excellent scientist. With design, it's far more up to the viewer to decide. And so when you are expecting talent to get you into a, many opportunities, because every other designer that's competing for a particular job or a particular project also has talent, it is ultimately going to be up to the person that's viewing that work to determine whether they think your talent is better than somebody else's talent. And the only way that they're going to be able to assess that, because most of the people that are hiring us to do design don't know design. That's why they're hiring a designer. Hmm, I don't like purple, so let's throw away that portfolio. So it really requires an ability to be able to talk about what you do in a way that allows the viewer to be able to understand what your message is. I was talking to somebody recently about what, does, what makes designers so special. And I've always felt that it is our incredible ability to provide empathy in any particular situation. We need to have an enormous amount of empathy to be able to understand messaging in a way to take a very specific message and be able to communicate that to a large number of people. If we're needing to communicate something to a large number of people, we have to understand something about the way people perceive and understand. Um, but I was talking to somebody and she said, actually, I think it's much more than that. I think that we have to be thinking 10 steps ahead, almost like a chess game, that if we communicate this way, then somebody's going to understand this this way and then this way and then this way. So I think ultimately, design talent is just the basic point of entry for any designer starting to think about a career in design. Number two, design is not about design. Design is about a whole lot of other things that ultimately result in design. And so in today's world, we need to have an understanding of anthropology, of psychology, of economics. We need to be able to understand from a cultural anthropological point of view why we are in the world we are in right now. Through design, we signal our affiliations. Through design, we signify our beliefs. And we create tribes just by the telegraphic nature of understanding how somebody looks, the things that they carry, what they drink, the sneakers that they wear. And if we're not able to understand what is happening culturally that impacts the way we choose things, the way we see things, and the way that we behave, we'll never be able to really engage and solicit the imagination of the people that we're designing for. It's also very much about understanding behavioral psychology because everything, everything in our world, everything that we see, everything that we believe in, everything that we engage in starts first in the brain. And the brain is the, this magnificent machine that allows us to perceive whatever it is we're perceiving. And we have the ability at any given time to see millions and millions and millions of bits of data subconsciously, but consciously we're actually only able to see about 40 things at any given time. And as a result, we are constantly living through our own patterns and creating our own patterns of recognition to be able to understand the world. And the best example that I can give you is when we buy a car. If we haven't bought that model before, when we're driving that car on the road, once we're in it, we begin to see that car everywhere, that model everywhere. Whereas before, we might not have noticed. 
And what that allows us to realize about our behavior is that our awareness is very much impacted by the things that we have around us. And so in order to break through those existing patterns of recognition that people have, especially as designers, when we want them to see something new or feel something new or perceive something new, we have to understand how to be able to navigate through those existing patterns to be able to get them to understand something that we're creating. And it's also very much about economics. People hire us to create design for them in order to sell more product, communicate an idea better, to move things off a shelf. People are giving us money to do what we love. But they're not really interested in that. They're interested in moving more product or communicating more clearly or winning an election. And so what we need to realize is that our clients are looking for a return on the investment of giving that money to us for us to do what we love. And so it's not a matter of showing our clients what we think is great or beautiful or breakthrough. It's really a matter of showing how what we design is going to help people understand what they're selling or messaging in a more profound way. I think it's also a very difficult time for design in that people have been talking more and more about the value proposition of design. But I actually rather like to see it more as what makes something valuable as opposed to what the value proposition is. What we want to do with design is not communicate a difference in a form or a flavor or a belief, but really a difference in how this particular thing, whatever it is, is going to make a difference in somebody's life. And when it makes a difference in somebody's life, then they'll be willing to pay for it in many ways, no matter what it costs. And I'll talk about why in a moment. The last thing that it requires is something that you probably, um, if you were here from Michael Beirut's presentation, probably already know, and that is you need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of everything. I mean, there's nobody smarter in the design business than Michael Beirut. And he often talks about how even though he has a design education, he really wished that when he was going to school, he was able to learn more about everything else but design because everything else fuels the way that we design. And the smarter we are in the world about anthropology and behavioral psychology and economics, the more informed our work is going to be and ultimately the more powerful our work is going to be. So that brings us to number three. And this one was a really tough one to learn. And so Lisa, here's where I might ever so slightly talk about boys. Um, there are two things that are really not about what we think they're about, money and sex. I'm not gonna talk about the sex part, at least not now. But money is never about money. And I'm, I think the best example that I can give you is what happens when Steve Jobs launches, releases some new trinket that we all are madly, passionately coveting. It might cost more than any of the other products on the market, but there's something about those products that make us feel absolutely okay, if not somewhat um, disappointed, but, but absolutely okay that we have to pay more money for. We expect, actually, that Apple products are going to cost more money. 
So if somebody really, really wants something, they're going to figure out a way to pay for it, even if they don't necessarily have the money. So one of the things that I want to tell you is that if somebody tells you that they don't want something that you're selling because they can't afford it, it's really just a nice way of them saying they don't want to hire you or they don't like you enough to spend the money. Or you have not convinced them that the value that you will provide will be valuable enough for them to pay more. So money is rarely about money. And if anybody wants to talk about why sex is never about sex, I'll do that after the presentation. Number four, ideas are easy. Strategy is much harder. Ideas are so easy for designers. I can ask everybody in this room to come up with a fabulous new label for Izzy Soda. You could all do it in about 15 minutes. But if I asked you to come up with an idea for a soda that had never been developed before, totally new selling proposition, that would take a lot more time. That might take forever, given how many carbonated soft drinks there are on the market. Coming up with a unique point of difference for a product or an idea is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Now, over the last 10 years, we've heard that word strategy next to design ad infinitum. And almost everybody I know thinks that they do strategic design. When I do lectures like this and I talk about strategy, I often ask a very, very simple question. What is strategy? I'm never able to get from the audience the Michael Porter, Harvard Business School, definition of strategy. And I find that really sad. Because if we're saying we do something, we should know what it is we're doing. And so when we're talking about strategic design, I think that there's really only one lens that you can look at strategic design through. And that is the Harvard Business School definition of what strategy is. So according to Michael Porter, the definition of strategy is, strategy is choosing to perform activities differently or to perform distinctly different activities than rivals. And I love this definition because I think it's so clear. There are really only two ways into doing strategic design. The first is choosing to perform activities differently. And the best example I can give is Starbucks. There were millions and millions and millions of coffee shops before Starbucks entered the picture. But Starbucks fundamentally changed the way we experience a coffee shop. So that's choosing to perform activities differently. Performing distinctly different activities than rivals is, our, of course, our favorite poster child, Apple. There were MP3 players on the market before the iPod came out, but they created a platform that included iTunes, which changed the game forever. So they chose to perform distinctly different activities than rivals. There was no other MP3 player that was linked to a music system quite in the way that iTunes was linked with the iPad. So they chose to perform distinctly different activities than rivals. Both of these lenses into strategic design provide an opportunity to create a game changer. And ultimately, I think that's really what we're looking for. Nobody is looking to do design that's just like somebody else's. We don't go into a project thinking, I'm going to do a me too design. I want to do something just like so and so and hope that nobody notices. We really want to do something that changes the game. And so this is really the only two ways in to consider that.
One of the other things about strategy that I think is so fascinating and how helpful it is to design is that ultimately it takes away much of the subjectivity that we, that our clients have in evaluating design. So if our design fulfills either of these two entry points, then ultimately it's not about whether somebody likes it or not. It's about whether it's going to perform or not and whether it is going to be able to provide a return on investment for the clients that we're working for. And it allows them to feel much more comfortable about creating a game-changing platform. Because many, many, many clients aren't gonna have the vision of a Starbucks or an Apple. Most projects, there's an enormous amount of fear that anything that's going to be done is going to destroy the market share or fail. Most consumers don't look at new things and say, woohoo, something new is gonna change my life, yay. That reptilian part of our brain is actually always looking out and making sure that we're not vulnerable to things. So anytime we see something new, it becomes a bit of a question and we become skeptical about whether it's going to impact our lives in a good way or a bad way. So it's very important if we have a strategic reason for being, if we're creating something that is either going to perform distinctly different activities than rivals or perform different activities, then chances are we're going to be able to create something that has a lot more meaning. And you need to be able to understand what it is you do and why and be able to communicate that in a really easy one-sentence experience what I call the, the elevator experience. If somebody says, oh, why are you a designer? Or why, why do you do what you do? You need to know what you believe in, whether or not it's popular. You know, Martin Luther King didn't go around saying, I have a dream. Let's see how many people in that focus group will like that line. He believed it. And, and my mission is really very simple. It's to make the supermarket a more beautiful place. But I, and I really, truly believe that passionately. And it informs every single thing that I do. I find that fascinating and endlessly interesting and challenging. So you need to know what your mission is and be able to communicate it in a way that people will fundamentally understand. And ultimately, I think you need to believe it so thoroughly that it becomes part of your DNA. It's not something false, it's not something phony, it's not something that you're hoping will impress people, it's just honest and authentic and part of who you are. So number five. This is one of the things that I learned um, kind of the hard way because I think that especially young designers and recent graduates want to be seen as knowing it all. I think it's really, really important to tell the truth. And I learned this best when I was with my goddaughter many, many, many years ago. She's in college now, so this was back when she was in elementary school. And she was first learning about computers. And she was really excited about the fact that she was learning about computers particularly because I spend my entire day on a computer and had then as well. And so we were talking about what she was learning and she was trying very um, diligently to express what it was that she was learning. And she was having a particularly difficult time with the language, with what it was that she was learning, how she was learning it, and she was really having a very difficult time communicating and stammering and hemming and hawing. And finally she stopped. And she looked at me and she took a big deep breath and she said, Debbie, life is so difficult when you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think that's the smartest thing that anybody has ever said to me. Because we, we get in our own way, we self-sabotage so many times. People will ask us if we know something and we feel that we have to impress them by saying yes. And then inevitably, 
the question after that will be, well, why or how? And then all of a sudden you're like, uh, and making things up and just saying random words. Yellow, pink, I don't know, kerning, kerning. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that if there's, there's nothing wrong with saying that you don't know something, especially if you're a recent graduate. That's the time in your life when you're not expected to know anything. And I think what happens when we admit that we don't know something, it gives somebody else an opportunity to share something that then creates more of a rapport and a mutuality than there might have been with you pretending that you knew something and not actually being able to have a genuine dialogue about that. People love to teach. People love to teach things. People love to actually know something that other people don't know. And so if you admit that you don't know something, then somebody will share that with you and then you can learn. So it's an opportunity to actually be educated. So, so I urge the, the people that are just starting out to, to try to tell the truth. Once somebody knows that you're not telling the truth and that you're not genuine, any trust that is possible with somebody com gets completely obliterated. So I think it's better to tell the truth and admit what you don't know than lie and pretend that you know something that you don't, that somebody probably realizes that you don't know that you don't know. So I thought a short break after number five would be appropriate to take care of some business. And today's episode is made possible by Squarespace. This is Sean Evaristo. I am a dancer, a choreographer, and creator. Sean's website experience is a classic case. Friends offering to help with coding and HTML and all that stuff, but it just never worked out. You know, like they were taking too long, the response back and forth, it just sucked. But then a friend told him about Squarespace. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a place that uh, where you can make your own website. And I was like, but you need, probably need to code in order to do that. They're like, no, nah, it's really simple. So he tried it, and he realized that everything he needed to make a professional website, he already had. I've been able to collect a bunch of photos that I like that represent me best. And I've got links to some of my videos. I was able to kind of see what Squarespace can do, and I was like, you're really serious that I can put this information on that and I could do it by myself. And now having a website that he's proud of has helped Sean reach clients around the world. For them to see everything laid out, easy for them to access is like, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen what he can do. I, I, I like what he represents and that's what we want. And that in turn helped me book a really big job. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And to get 10% off your first purchase, make sure to use offer code GOODMORNING when signing up. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Okay, so let's get back to Debbie Millman's top 10 things I wish I knew when I graduated college. So number six. Common vocabulary does not equate with common behavior. And the best example I can give you here is when you say, I love you to somebody. So you can say, I love you to somebody, and... If they don't love you back, they could still say that they love you, but not in that way. But it's, this, it's still the same language. They love you, but they don't love you in that way that you love them. And I think this is one of the biggest issues that designers have with business people and with marketers, is that the language that's being used might actually be similar, but the meaning and the interpretation of those words could be very, very different. So we, for example, at Sterling could be going into a meeting with a CEO who says that they want to really change the game with this package or with this logo, really do something revolutionary, put a stake in the ground, let's make a difference. And then when we come back for the first phase design presentation, 
they look at the work and they get completely freaked out because it's too revolutionary. And actually what they meant by revolutionary was going from light blue to dark blue. <laughs> and unless you're IBM, not really sure that that's revolutionary. So it's really important to be able to understand the vocabulary of direction prior to starting any design job. And ultimately, the best way to capture all of that is with a design brief or a creative brief. And I believe that working one day, one day working on a design brief is worth at least a week of design time because you're not spinning your wheels so much and you're actually literally and figuratively agreeing on what the language means, what the words mean. But you also need to make sure that it's differentiating enough to allow you to do some interesting and breakthrough work. I was at a design summit many years ago for a client, and all the design agencies came together and were talking about the issues in dealing with that client. And he um, showed the audience one of the design briefs that he was given by this client. And the target market for this design brief was relevant, contemporary, and for today's mom. So he said, now wait a second. If you didn't tell me that, do you think that I would be designing for irrelevant, old-fashioned, yesterday's moms? Probably not. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that anybody that necessarily needs to be told that something needs to be relevant and contemporary. And what does that mean? So the language that we use in our creative briefs needs to be differentiating enough to allow us to be able to do good work that is permissible at the very, very start of a project. Number seven, relentlessly prepare. We did a, a job about eight years ago for Star Wars. And uh, we, for the first time in my life, I got an opportunity to go to Skywalker Ranch which was incredibly exciting. Now, the design team that we put on the job were people that were real Star Wars aficionados, like people with the packages that are on shelves that they dust in their apartments. And so, of course, we thought, well, those are the people we want on the job because they really fundamentally understand the Star Wars zeitgeist. And we were so excited by the work that we did. We were also madly in love with the work that we did that we were actually high-fiving each other in the parking lot before we even went into the meeting because we were just so proud of ourselves for getting to that place. And when we got to the meeting, when we got into the meeting, something happened that had never happened before in my life. I mean, I've had clients not like some work in a meeting, but I've never had an experience where they hated everything, like hated everything. It had never occurred to me that that could happen. And I think it's really important that designers prepare themselves for every possible opportunity that could occur when showing our work. We were so taken aback that, of course, we had the reaction that most people have when clients don't like our work, which is like, are you an idiot? I mean, we didn't say that, but clearly we were defensive and trying to convince them that our work was good. And if anybody's ever been in a department store and been told by a salesperson that they look good in a pair of jeans that they know their butt looks fat in, you know you can't be persuaded to like something that you know you don't like. And if you keep fighting for it, it will just end badly. So we ended up retreating and redoing all of the work, but the lesson for me was I need to be able to understand what all the possible outcomes are when I present work. Rudy Giuliani used to say that for every hour he spent in court, he used to spend four hours preparing. 
So I think that designers need to not necessarily rehearse, because I think that sometimes that scripted rehearsal can ultimately end up in something that feels canned. But I think you absolutely need to ask yourself, what are the possible reactions that could happen, and what will I do if that happens? And it allows you to be much more prepared for any outcome. And so if you're able to visualize every scenario, if you're, ever, if you're able to anticipate the unanticipated, I think ultimately it will make you feel more powerful when you're presenting. And one of the best examples that I like to give is what happens in a basketball game. People talk about how everything in a basketball game happens in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter. But if a team is losing at the last, in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter, the coach doesn't get the team around him and say, now I want everybody to work as hard as you can in these last two minutes. They have a game plan. They actually have things that they've learned how to do when in that situation that then ultimately gives them a much more competitive opportunity to win the game. So what happens? If you think about what you might do if these situations occur, you'll ultimately be much more equipped to deal with them. Number eight. I read a book a couple of years ago by Patrick Lencioni that talked about what he called artificial harmony. And artificial harmony is one of those things that happens when you're in a meeting and nobody wants to tell the truth. In human nature, humans are really reluctant to confront each other over things. I think that's also why text messaging now is, is so popular. You know, people don't like confrontation. They don't like to be confronted and they don't like to confront. So when you're showing work in a meeting, chances are you're not going to get the reaction that we got at Star Wars that day, which is, we hate everything, what are you, crazy? It's more like, oh, okay, this is, this is good, good. And then you leave the meeting, and chances are you and your partners or your colleagues all look at each other, and because they said, yeah, you know, it's good, it's good, that you all like, that was a good meeting. They said it was good. And you, you, know, you tell yourself what they told you. But I guarantee when those situations happen, chances are by the time you get back to your office, there's an email or a phone call waiting for you that says, now that we've had more of an opportunity to look at the work, we think that it's really not as good as we thought it was. That always happens. Whenever you get that vibe that somebody isn't madly in love with the work, it's because they're not madly in love with the work. Nobody like holds back because they don't want to share the excitement that they feel in front of you. It just doesn't happen that way. And what I tend to do in those situations is give people the permission to feel that. And so I'll just say something really non-defensive, something like, I'm sensing that you don't love this work as much as you were hoping you would. And then that gives them the permission to say, yeah, you really didn't hit the mark. And that it's, it still gives you the opportunity to keep that trust that you've developed and come up with a game plan together as opposed to going back to your office and having to repair everything that disappointed them in the next meeting, which then tends to be a week or so later and there's all that time for doubt to grow. And they've no longer got the confidence in you to be able to solve their problem. And then maybe they're starting to think about other people that they might work with. And before you know it, there's like five other people on the project. So I, I recommend, if you feel that, if you sense that artificial harmony, then I would suggest acting on it. Number nine, seek out criticism. I often talk to my students about three ways of knowing things. We know what we know. So I know I'm a woman, I'm reaching a, an age milestone and a yearly milestone in my work and 
what I'm doing. I know I'm left-handed. I know I'm a Scorpio. I know what I don't know. I know that I'm not a mathematician. I know that I'm not a brain surgeon. I know that I can't read music and I play the guitar really badly. But there's this third thing. So I know what I know and I know what I don't know. But what we don't know is what we don't know. That's the important stuff to know. The only way to be able to find that out is to ask somebody. It's sort of like having spinach on your teeth. It's there, but you don't know it. The only way to find out is either to look in the mirror, which you might not necessarily be able to do at that moment, or to have somebody tell you. And so what I tell people now when I'm looking at their portfolios or when I'm teaching them about showing their portfolio, especially in the early stages of the career, is ask people that you're showing your work to that you respect, what is the one thing in the portfolio that you would take out? And if you start to hear that same thing over and over and over again by people, you know you should probably take it out. It's also important in a portfolio not to have things in your portfolio just because you want to show somebody that you can do that type of work. So you have a book cover in your portfolio because you want people to know you can do book covers. If it's a crappy design, nobody's gonna hire you to do a book cover. It's better to have less things in your portfolio and have them all be things that you're proud of, that you can defend, that you can talk about strategically, than something that's filler or something that somebody is going to feel represents some aspect of what you're capable of doing. Because that never works and it ends up diluting the overall impact of your work. And I think for, for people that are just graduating college, if you're not making enough mistakes, you're not taking enough risks. This is the time in your life, probably the only time in your life where it's absolutely acceptable to fall on your face. And fall on your face, fall on your face a lot. You have to live as if it doesn't matter if you make a mistake, at least at the beginning, which is really, really hard to do. That gets me to number 10. It's, it's sort of a, an odd segue, but you need to know how to present. You need to know how to talk about your work and you need to know how to talk about what you do, even if you are afraid and even if you are nervous. I talk about an article that I read about Barbara Streisand many years ago in The New Yorker. Somebody was asking her manager, I guess the reporter was asking her manager what um, her greatest talent was. And he said, well, actually, her greatest talent isn't um, singing or um, directing or acting or even her longevity in the business. Her greatest talent is doing all of those things even while experiencing de debilitating stage fright. So I think if we approach our work, knowing how to present, it'll give us tools that help us circumvent the nerves or the fear. I think that if you don't know how to present, take a class. Presenting is a skill in the same way that design is a series of skills. Presenting is a science and an art. If you have problems speaking, work with a voice coach. It is the single most important skill in being a successful designer, aside from design. And so just some advice, um, I, I recommend that you work as hard as you can and work harder than everybody else. A lot of people ask me um, how I've gotten to this place in my 50-year-old life, and I say, I'm not that good. I'm just really unwilling to give up. <laughs> I have gotten to a place where I realize that I want to have a a good life. I want to have a life that I feel proud of. And the only way that you can do that is to keep trying, to keep persisting. I, I also talk a lot to my students about sports stats. You know, Babe Ruth was one of the greatest players, baseball players ever to have played. And his stats show that 
he failed actually at bat more than he succeeded, which is pretty remarkable. Most all baseball players fail at bat more than they succeed, but that doesn't mean that they stop going up to bat. And so I think that we have to expect that a good portion of the time we're going to strike out, but there's probably 35 or 40% of the time that we're going to get on base and maybe 10 or 15% of the time that we might hit it out of the stadium. And those are the moments that I live for, hitting it out of the stadium. And so for those that are really at the very beginnings of their career, I would suggest not to compromise. If you see this opportunity as one of the few in your life where you have very little to lose, probably don't have a mortgage, probably don't have kids, now's the time that you can try and fail. And if you think that you're too busy to do something, I want to talk to you about what busy means. I think busy is a four-letter word. I think busy is never about busy in the same way that sex is not about sex and money is never about money. Busy is a way of organizing your priorities. And we use being busy or thinking that we're busy as a reason not to do something that we really want to do. If you're not doing something that you really want to do, then you really don't want to do it. If you really want to do something, you will find the time to do it. So be honest with yourself. If you're not doing something that you tell yourself that you want to be doing, it means that you don't want to be doing it. And so figure out either how to do it or what to do instead. I think it's important to consider the two ways of living. You can live out of fear, where everything in front of you is something that is unnerving, or you can live out of power, where everything could be an opportunity if you let it. And so I think in order to strive for a remarkable life, you have to decide that you want one. Because if you expect less, less is all you're going to get. And so I hope that the force be with you. <laughs> Thank you very, 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 very much. This was edited for the purpose of time. So for the complete talk and the audience Q&A, you can find it at creativemornings.com. Each week, we've been asking you to submit your answers to our question, what does it mean to you to lead a creative life? This week, we're featuring Bas from Brooklyn, New York. I think living a creative life means a lot of freedom and a lot of joy, and at the same time, a lot of discontent. It's never finished. So there's, there's like an endless possibility to explore and to learn. That's sort of what it means to me. Send us your voice memos to podcast at creativemornings.com. Our thanks to Debbie Millman, Paola Antonelli, and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. On next week's episode, we'll hear from the author of Start With Why, Simon Sinek. We come to work and we're told, you must care for your clients, you must care for your customers, you must make them the focus of all you do, and yet why aren't the people who are managing us from the top caring about us? Special thanks to Leanne and Ross Drakes in Johannesburg for this week's Rooster. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning, remember it's singular, and use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks, or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. 